0: Welcome to Parker Memorial's podcast of the 8.30 a.m. service. Our service includes modern-style worship and an on-time message from God's Word. This week, we continue our in-depth study into the book of Revelation by Dr. Mac Amos. Now, here's this week's message. If you have your Bibles, you go ahead and be turning to the Revelation.
1: Revelation chapter 17. Revelation chapter 17. 17. Chapter 17 through 19 focus on something very important in God's Word and in the redemption of this world as God brings it to an end. It has to do with the cleansing of all the systems of the world, the religious system, political, economic, even the military systems of the world. It's an explanation of what all has to happen in order for God to be able to redeem His world. And to understand that, it's very important for us to understand the scope of sin. I think sometimes we fail to realize the scope of sin. We think that sin, that when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, that there was certainly the old serpent there who's evil and he has demons. We know that. And man fell and man sinned and therefore sin entered into our heart. But we fail to realize that when Adam and Eve sinned at that time, that sin entered into the world not just entered in in the person of human beings or demons or whatever, but sin actually entered into the world. It began to affect every aspect, every element, every gathering of people in the world. It would affect such things as political, military, economic, and it affect the religious aspect of life. Therefore, the redemption of God means that all of those aspects of life must be redeemed by him. To put it one way, I'd say it it like this. If if Satan and all the demons of hell were to take a week's vacation and have no influence on this world, you and I will still have problems. And the world will still have problems because of sin. You get that? It's not just the old enemy himself himself. But sin entered into the world. You might ask the question, well, how, how would you know that? How do you know that sin entered into the world and sin affects the world as a whole? Well, here are a few reasons that you know that based on God's word and observation that we see in life. And here are a few things that we know that, that sin affected. One thing it affected was plant life, didn't it? Whenever, whenever sin entered in the world, what did God say in Genesis 3 that was going to happen? He said that there would be thorns and thistles that would come upon the earth and make that you would weary and tarry in order to bring forth the crops and to feed your family. Those weren't initially intended. Those came about as a result of sin. So we know that it affected plant life. We know that it affected animal life. You say, how did it affect animal life? Because this viciousness of carnivorous animals Going upon and taking it down, weak prey, was never the intention of God to begin with. How do I know that? Because it says that when he redeems the world, the lion will lay down with the lamb. <laughs> that they will, they will eat just like the cud of a cow. So will these carnivorous animals eat because it be restored to what he intended for it to be. But whenever sin entered into animal life, there was this viciousness and carnivorous activity. We we know that it, it affected the climate, don't we? Absolutely. Things that people blame on God are, are not what God does. It's it's because sin entered into the world. When those tornadoes come or hurricanes come or floods happen, those things are a result of sin entering into the world. It affects our world. It is here. We know that climate is affected in such things as deserts. A couple of weeks ago, we were out, and we were in the midst of a desert. And and deserts weren't necessarily intended by God in this world. You say, how do you know that? Because he talks about in Israel that whenever he would restore Israel, he will take the desert land and make it a fertile crescent. It's always the idea of this blessing of what God would do. But sin has caused the climate even to change. All right, even what about microorganisms? Microorganisms? Wait a, have any of you ever heard of germs, bacteria, viruses that make you sick and can kill people? God God never intended for that to happen. But sin, when sin entered into the world, it affects even microorganisms to the fact that it would cause death and sickness to people that God never intended to have. But what I simply want you to understand is that sin affects all of life in so many ways beyond what we could ever grasp. And the redemptive plan of God is that he is going to come and redeem all of the world. He is redeeming all of creation, not just man, but all of creation. And that means that he's going to redeem everything and every system set forth from those political realms to the military, to religion, to whatever those systems are, that are skewed and marred by sin, God is going to make that right. So how does he do that? First of all, he comes and he reveals what it is. He judges it, he destroys it, and he remakes it. That's the way God does it, all right? That's the way God deals with sin. He reveals it, he judges it at sin, he destroys it, and he remakes it. That's what God is going to do. And here in chapters 17 through 19 is God explaining that in his redemption, in this time of redemption, he is going to deal with every one of those elements. In chapter 17, he is focusing upon the religion, the false religion of the tribulation. And he'll tell you how that false religion came to be. And he will tell you what will it be the ultimate change of that and his ultimate judgment of that as he judges the false religion. In chapters eighteen and nineteen chapter eighteen, he's going to deal with the political and economic realm of how he deals with that. And in chapter nineteen, he'll talk about the military realm of how he will deal with that. Every time he is going to reveal it, he's going to judge it, gonna destroy it, and going to remake it. That's what God is in the process of doing. And he just basically opens back the windows of heaven and says, let me show to you in this tribulation time what's going to happen. So chapter 17 primarily focuses on the religion of the tribulation. There's going to be the religion in the tribulation period of time. And he helps us to understand where that comes from, how it came to be and how he will eventually deal with it. So I want us to read chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. We won't read all of it today, we'll read portion of it. Listen to what it says. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the underline this or circle it, the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality. And those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. Verse 5 is very important. And upon her forehead a name was written, a mystery. Now remember that word mystery in the New Testament is talking about something that has not been known, something that is there that has not been known, but God is now revealing that, letting it be known what it is. So here's a mystery that's about to be revealed. A mystery. Here's the title Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abomination of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered greatly. And the angel said to me, Why do you wonder? I shall tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast. ...that carries her, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and to go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth will wonder, whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. When they see the beast that he was and is not and will come, here is the mind which has wisdom... The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman sits. And they are the seven kings. Five have fallen. One is. The other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. And the beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth. And is one of the seven. And he goes to destruction. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings... Who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with beasts for one hour. These have one purpose and they give their power and authority to the beast. In verse 15, and he said to me, the waters which you saw where where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. This is God dealing with the religion of the tribulation. Let's talk about some of the characters, first of all, in this particular passage. First of all, you have the character of the great harlot. It says that this one is the great harlot in verse number one, who sits on many waters. The great harlot in this case is the fact it is the religion of the tribulation. This false and idolatrous religion that is going to exist during the tribulation time. And he's going to help us to understand why it's, she's called the great harlot and why she has the name upon her that it says it originates in verse 5 in Babylon. But right now, just to suffice, it is the religion of the false, idolatrous religion of the tribulation. All right? It says, she sits on many waters. In verse 15, it explains what the waters are. It says, "The waters are the people's, multitudes and nations and tongues." And what's that describing is this false religion that is going to exist in the time of tribulation. This false religion that is going to be ushered in, when the rapture of the church happens, it's going to begin, and it is going to exist for three and one half years. This false religion. And it will be one that the entire world will receive. All peoples, all nations, all multitudes. She sits over that. That means she has authority over that. Or that that is the religion of the world. There's going to be one religion at that time. And it's going to be an ecumenical religion. Where the fact that everybody has come together in a conglomerate of what everybody believes. And has formed this religion that is a false ungodly religion but a religion of great influence in the time of tribulation. It says there's also that she is riding upon a scarlet beast. Well, the beast is the government. It is the government that is being run in the tribulation time. And we know who is supposed to be over the government. We already discovered that. Who's over the government, the political system? The Antichrist. He is the beast who is over the over the government and rules the government but what it tells you in this is that this, this harlot this scar is going to be riding this beast and she's going to be sitting on top or in other words for that period of time she's going to have great influence and actually the antichrist is going to come and allow this religion to have great influence so that the world receive that and the world would adapt to his leadership That's only going to last for three and a half years. Because as we'll read on in chapter 17, we find that there will be a time whenever he and these ten kings who are with him, that they will take down that false religion. They will kill that false religion, that harlot, and make her naked, and there will be one religion that will be established, and that is going to be the worship of the Antichrist. Remember, three and a half years in, he goes into the temple, puts his image up, and he proclaims himself as what? As God. I am God, and everyone will worship. But for the first three and a half years, there's going to be this false religion, this false, idolatrous religion, worldwide religion that is working in conjunction with the Antichrist pushing people and moving people towards honoring Him and worshiping Him. And along with that, there are, ten, there are ten kings. It says that those ten kings, those same ten kings that we heard of, who are going to be under the leadership of the Antichrist, helping to rule the world, these ten kings will have that false religion as authority over them. They will be under that control and that false religion will be setting forth the power and making all the decisions. Interesting thing about that is it tells you in regard to this beast, it'll tell you something about where it will be located. Did you know that the center of control of that is going to actually be, most people believe, in Rome. Rome will be where it's located. How do you know that? Because of how it defines this mystery. It says in verse uh, 9 and 10, it says, Here's the mind. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And you know that Rome is known as the city of the seven hills or the seven mountains. And so the religious organization, the religious leadership, is going to be the fact that it's going to be taking place... Over here in Rome. Because of why? Because this is the center of his political as well as religious influence in that world. Because it says that this old beast, if you remember, he is going to reestablish the Roman Empire. You remember that? He's going to reestablish the Roman Empire. Never died. The Roman Empire was never defeated. It just dissipated. And whenever this old beast comes in, he is going to reestablish that Roman Empire. You know that based on what it says in verses 10 and 11. It says, and they are, those seven heads are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. And the beast, which was and is not and is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven, he goes to destruction. Well, if you read that. That can confuse you, doesn't it? I mean, it talks about there's seven, the seven heads and what do the seven heads represent and who are they? And then it talks about that there's five and one is and one's not. And then the beast is going to be the eighth one, but he was also the seventh one. Does that confuse you? (laughs) Well, it'll help you to understand that what it's really talking about is the fact that the beast and the Antichrist is going to reestablish the Roman Empire. And it describes that there are seven heads and five of them have already been. Now, this is in a time when John is writing it. You remember who they were? The first was Julius Caesar, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius. And who was the fifth one? Nero. Nero. Five have been... One is, who was the one who was the Caesar at that time? Domitian. Domitian was the one who had sent John to the Isle of Patmos. And so those were the six who are the Caesars or the Emperors. And one is yet to come, the seventh one. That is the Antichrist. The Antichrist is going to reestablish the Roman Empire. He's going to set up Rome as his place that's where the false religion is going to be based out of, on that, where the seven mountains, the city of the seven mountains. And he is the seventh of those leaders, but he's also the eighth. How is he seventh and eighth? Because you remember what happens to the Antichrist. When he comes on the scene, what happens? He gets killed. Remember that? He is struck down as though dead then after a period of time, he is going to seem to be resurrected. You remember that? So he's the seventh emperor, and whenever he dies, there wouldn't be an emperor until he comes back to life, and he is the seventh, but he is still yet the eighth. Does that make sense? And it's talking about this false god, this false leader called the Antichrist, who has reestablished the Roman Empire. That's what it's talking about. But it's primarily talking about this harlot, this harlot, this great harlot who is the one who is the religious, the false religion of that time. It introduces her by giving that name there in verse 5, Babylon, she has, she has this name, she is Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, the abominations of the earth. Now what is that saying? Well, this is what it's saying to you. It's saying, look back in history. Take a look back and find out what was happening in the beginning of human history. So let's do that. Hold your hand here and turn to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10 is after the flood. The flood has happened. God has brought them through the flood. And Noah and his three sons have gone out and they've began to replenish the earth. And in chapter 10, it gives the descendants of Noah, a genealogy of the descendants of Noah. It tells you basically what their names are, except it comes to one particular man and it gives greater detail about who he is. Look what it says in verse 8. Now Cush, who's the son of Ham, became the father of Nimrod. That's an important name. Became the father of Nimrod, he became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Nimrod was the first emperor on this earth, After the flood, he becomes great in this world and he becomes the world ruler of that time. It says this in verse 10. And the beginning of his kingdom was what? Was Babel. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Then it goes on and names other other cities in that kingdom. But the beginning of his rulership, the beginning of his kingdom is Babel. Now, that word in Hebrew is the word bab-el, bab-el, And it means the gateway to El God. The gateway to God is what he intended Babel, the city of Babel, to be. The gateway to God. You remember what happened with Babel? It's found there in chapter 11. What took place in chapter 11? It says that all the people came together and they had what kind of language? How many languages do they have? They had one language at that time. And when they came together with this one language, it says in verse 4, they came and said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city, a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. They're more concerned about who they are than who God is. And they want to build a tower that reaches up into heaven. Why build a tower to reach up into heaven? In order... That they would be able to study the stars. That they might be able to study the stars. Not to see that the stars are there, but to be able to get a word from the stars. They wanted to get into the heavens so they could get a word from the stars, which is called astrology. They wanted to get a word from the stars more than they wanted to get a word from God. And whenever they began to build this city and build this tower, and they're going to be doing this and, and, and practicing these things, God said, I'm going to confuse their language. So he confuses their language, and the city is called the Tower of Babel, which means confusion. and if they wanted to be a, the gateway to God, God says, I'm going to make it a city of confusion, and their languages began to be confused, and they couldn't understand each other, therefore forcing them to go out, into the world, and to scatter among all those nations. This is Nimrod, who was the emperor and leader of Babel at that time, which is known as Babylon, the city of Babylon. Why was it important for them to get up and to go and to study the stars? Because of the wife of Nimrod. The wife of Nimrod, her name is Semiramis. S E M I R A M I S. Semiramis is the wife of Nimrod. When Nimrod came into the land of Shinar, which is where Babylon would be located, it would be in Iraq. It's right there where the Garden of Eden would have been, all right? When he came into the land of Shinar to build the city of Babylon, he met a woman named Semiramis. She was actually a harlot, but whenever he fell in love with her and he chose to make her his queen, they made a a folklore that she had been brought forth from the sea, a virgin from the sea, from the god of the sea, to give as a gift of Nimrod, because it wouldn't be really great for a harlot to be the emperor's queen. When Semiramis comes and she is the queen... She has great influence over Nimrod. Matter of fact, she becomes the most influential person in the kingdom of Babylon. She pretty well dictates what's going to happen. She moved into so much power that she eventually had Nimrod killed. She had him killed. She instated her son as the emperor. And she basically ruled in the place of her son while next to her son giving him the focal point, but her really making decisions, until she decides she's going to kill him, and then he found about it, and it ended up killing her. But for 102 years, she was the primary influence in the kingdom of Babylon, in the city of Babel, where everybody spoke the same language, and she, she was the goddess, she was the mother of all idolatry. Idolatry began in Babel. I want you to hear what a theologian, Harry Ironside, he writes about Semiramis. Ancient lore now comes to our assistance and tells us that the wife of Nimrod Bar Cush was the infamous Semiramis, the first. She is reputed to have been the founder of the Babylonian Mysteries, the first high priestess of idolatry. Thus Babylon became the fountainhead of idolatry, the mother of every heathen and pagan system in the world. The mystery religion was that was originated there spread in various forms throughout the whole earth and it is with us even to this day. It is identical with the mystery of iniquity which wrought so energetically in Paul's day and shall be in its fullest development when the Holy Spirit has departed and the Babylon of the apocalypse holds sway. In other words, that which began in Babylon with Semiramis and that idolatrous worship continues all throughout human history even till today and it will see its pinnacle when it gets to the time of tribulation recorded right here when the Holy Spirit is gone, the church is gone and it is rampant in it, idolatrous worship. She was the one who was the high priestess of idolatry. Now, let me tell you about her. She, first of all, I told you, she said that she was a virgin who came from the sea. But being a harlot, she still acted like a harlot, even though she was married to Nimrod, she had an illegitimate child. The illegitimate child's name is Tammuz. Tamaz. And Tammuz was her pride and joy, until Tamaz was supposedly killed by a wild boar when he was grown. And for 40 days, she wept. For 40 days, she wept. And then after 40 days of weeping, Tammuz supposedly comes back to life. Tammuz is given life, all right? And it's called the Feast of Ishtar. That's another name for Semiramis. Ishtar, the Feast of Ishtar. Do you know where we get the name or what we transliterate Ishtar into? Easter. Easter. And do you know what was the sign that they passed along to each other that talked about the new life being given? An egg. An egg was given at the Feast of Ishtar to symbolize life has been given. Life again. Wow. That is what she had brought into. That's what she had brought. And she began to establish this mother-son worship. The mother her, the son Tammuz to worship. And they had that all together until, remember what happened with the languages? The languages began to be different and they had to go from one place to another and therefore... That mother-child worship continued on. Did you know that? Every false religion that has mother-child worship initiated back in Babylon. For instance, in Phoenicia, the mother is Ashtaroth, and the son is Baal. In Egypt, the mother is Isis, the son is Horus. In Greek, the mother is Aphroditus, the son is Eros. In Rome, the mother is Venus... And the son is Cupid. There is this constant mother-child worship growing out of what? Out of what was started in Babylon with Semiramis. And that kind of idolatrous false worship has been a part of human history. The people of the Old Testament, the children of Israel... They had to deal with those false worship that had started in Babylon. That's why God in chapter 12 of Genesis, that's why he calls Abraham out of that land. He was in that land. He calls him out of that land to get him away from that false ungodly worship so that he would worship the true God. The one true God. Wow. That is so important. The children of Israel in all of their days have had to deal with this false worship. Write these verses down so that you can have them. We don't have time to look at them. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 18. Jeremiah 44, verses 17 through 19 and 25. Why would I want you to look at those? Because you know what it says there? The children of Israel say that they have offered wafers, wafers to the Queen of Heaven. And when they offered their wafers to the Queen of Heaven, they were blessed. But when they stopped offering their their wafers to the Queen of Heaven, then they were not blessed. And who is the Queen of Heaven? That was one of the names Semiramis gave to herself, that she was the Queen of Heaven. The Queen of Heaven. So here the children of Israel are supposed to be worshiping God, the one and only God, and they're over here offering wafers to a false god. That's not all. Let me show you this one. In Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 14. Listen to what this says. Then he brought me to the entrance of the gate of the Lord's house, the temple, which was towards the north. And behold, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. It's right there. You see it? Chapter 8, verse 14. They were weeping for Tammuz. You know what they were doing? They were in the 40 days of weeping. The 40 days of weeping wait until the day that he would have life again. That is a false doctrine. That is idolatrous worship that the women of the children of Israel were participating in. That's not all though. Look at verse 16. And he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house and behold at the entrance to the temple of the Lord between the porch of the altar were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces towards the east and they were prostrating themselves eastward toward the sun. What were these Israelites doing? They were worshiping the sun God who had given, who had given life To Tammuz, Tammuz was supposedly, uh, wasn't born naturally illegitimate, but do you know what they said? That the sunbeam from the sun god had given him life. He He was from the sun god. And therefore, all of these are bowing down, children of Israel, bowing down, worshiping the sun god who had given life to Tammuz, where the women are weeping for Tammuz. What a pitiful, pitiful thing. But that's what the children of Israel had to battle with. That's not all. Go to 1 Kings chapter 18. When Elijah goes to Mount Carmel and he has to do battle against who? Against the prophets of who? The prophets of Baal. I just told you, in Phoenicia, who was the son? His name is Baal. Who was the mother? Ashtaroth. And Jezebel, who was a Phoenician princess before she married King Ahab, had brought all of that false gods into Israel and that had become the dominant religion until Elijah stands on Mount Carmel and tells the children of Israel, decide between God and Baal. And the God who answers by fire is the real true God. And only one God answered because there's only one God. But Baal and that false religion had penetrated. Jezebel had come and controlling Nahab and controlling religion had led them in that direction. It wasn't until they went into exile and got their hearts purified that they were ready to turn back to their real God. That's when they were ready to turn back to God. But hold on a second. That's not all. Whenever you go to the New Testament, you find the Apostle Paul deals with a group called the Gnostics or Gnosticism. Do you know what Gnosticism is? It's the same False religion. The same idolatrous worship. What I'm simply saying to you is it has been here from the beginning. That's why it says the mystery is no more. Babylon, the harlot of Babylon. She was a harlot who ushered in this false religion and the abominations of God and is going to culminate in this tribulation period. It's going to culminate in this tribulation time. But let me tell you what happened in the church age. We'll talk more about this next week, okay? see what happened to the church. Whenever Babylon was defeated and whenever its temples where their temples were torn down, the high priest of that false religion took some fellow followers and the sacred vessels and traveled to a city named Pergamus. You remember Pergamus? Pergamus is one of the cities of the seven churches that we preached about earlier in the revelation. But for, from Pergamus they crossed over the sea, To Italy. To Italy. And there in Italy, they were known as the Acrustus Mystery, which is the same as the Babylonian Mystery. And they began to have an influence upon the church. They began to have an influence upon the church. And the Roman church that was there saw the power that was in this false worship. And they wanted to adapt themselves to where everybody everybody would be able to follow and be a part of the church. And so they took some of the practices and thoughts and ideas of this Babylonian false idolaters' worship and incorporated that into their practices. Incorporated. Now, I'm not trying to belittle anybody, not trying to criticize anybody. I'm just telling you the truth as far as what happened in regard to that. And that particular thing brought about some doctrine that are not true and not biblical. They're not scriptural anyway. You can't find them anywhere. They came from somewhere from an outward source of influence. Why? Because this is the, this is the purpose of Satan. He wants to offer every idolatrous worship he can. He wants to offer every false worship there can be. Everything He, he wants to lay it out in multitudes of options. Because if He gives you more and more options, you may miss the one true way. There's only one true way to salvation. And if you have all of these false doctrines that are out there, false beliefs, you can miss the way. One of the problems within the Roman church is this. Their belief is that you just need to be a part of the church. It's not about being saved. It's being a part of the church. I'm going to tell you, being a part of the church doesn't save anybody. Whether Catholic, Baptist, Methodist, you being a member of the church is not going to save you. You are saved because you have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And whenever they're focused on the fact that you just need to be a part of the church and you need to be in the church and all that matters is that you're in the church, it doesn't matter whether or not you got saved or asked Jesus to come into your heart, just a part of the church, that is misleading. And there are going to be people that are going to be lost without Christ. And in the tribulation time, my friend, I'll tell you, the church is going to be here. It's not going to be the real church. The real church is gone. It's not going to be those who are truly saved during the tribulation time, for they are going to be the enemy of the state. And they're going to be killed and martyred. But there's going to be a church here that is not saved. There's going to be a church here that's going to gather together, and they're going to practice all kinds of things, And what you're going to find out is it's going to be an ecumenical movement. It's going to be more and more, let's just all be alike. Let's all come together. Let's all worship the same God. Let's all be alike. And that's the religion of the tribulation. That's the religion of the tribulation. And I'm here to tell you, every day we live in, right now, every day we live in, you hear more and more about ecumenicalism, about becoming everybody just come one. I'm not becoming like everybody else. I'm going to stand on the truth of the gospel of Christ. I'm going to believe that Jesus is the way that saves. I'm not going to accept those things. I'm not going to be a part of that. And that you're not either. Whenever you buy into that, you are going to open your heart up to idolatrous worship. And opening up, filling in the scheme of what Satan wants to do in order to provide any and every way except the right way to be saved. The right way to be saved. Now, we're going to pick up here. We're going to talk more about how and why and what in the New Testament era. And in our day, this Babylon harlot works today. But more importantly, what happens in the tribulation? And then what happens later whenever the old Antichrist has used that religion for all it wants and tears it down only for him to be the one who's worshipped? You think that didn't how can anybody just accept one emperor, one leader as a poor as a point of worship? That idolatrous church of the tribulation is going to be like a frog in boiling water. It's going to get people more and more and more ready so that whenever he stands up and says, I'm the one God, they'll all fall in line with following him. Why? Because of the religion of the tribulation, which had its start at the beginning of human history, and has been with us every step of the way. Every religion, every false religion you know, whether, whether it is Hindus, Buddhists, whether it's Islam, whether it's atheism, and atheism is a religion, my friend. It's a relig- religion. You understand that? Whether it is New Age, secular humanism, I don't care what it is, all of those are designed by the enemy to give you one more option. So you'll miss the truth. Because he don't want you to know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But he is. He is. And when we get to heaven, that's what's going to get us in. Is that we know who our Savior is. Not what church we're part of. Who our Savior is. Do you know him? I hope you know him. I hope you know him. If you don't, you can come to know him today.
0: That concludes this week's message from Brother Mack. Additional sermons and reference materials are available from our website at parkermemorial.com slash sermon series. Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. I have overcome the world.